0: Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that because of the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we have direct access to your throne of grace and that we can bring our uh, petitions and our prayers before you in order to uh, address the cares and concerns that we have in life and also to uh, call upon your throne of justice and righteousness in order to uh, bring about uh, your will in this world, and this life. And, Fathers, we face the injustices and the evils that continue in the cosmic system. We know that we have to be patient because you are uh, working things out according to your plan and your schedule and that eventually there will be a complete, uh, there will be an a execution of your justice on the cosmic system. And at that time, all things will be made right. Father, we pray that we might continue to be diligent students of your word because only as we study your word and as we come to understand life from the vantage point of your word are we then able to translate that uh, by means of the Holy Spirit into uh, a life that glorifies you. And we pray as we study this evening that we will uh, become more aware of who you are and your character, your attributes, that we might... Recognize how important it is for us to live to glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're making another chapter shift this evening from chapter 14 to chapter 15 in uh, the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 14, we saw last time that there is a uh, slight shift that took place coming out of chapter 13 11, 12, 13 introduced us to major characters, major events during the uh, period of the tribulation. Chapter 14 functions as a summary overview of the, how things will be brought to completion in the tribulation period. The focal point of chapter 14 is really on the two harvests, the grain harvest that judgment is represented by the uh, son of Man coming with a sharp sickle, and then the uh, the grain harvest the i mean the uh, grape harvest, the vineyard harvest, which also uh, represents the uh, violence and the bloodiness uh, and the horrors of the judgment that comes at the conclusion of the tribulation period, so that chapter stands uh, as a prelude as the as John looks forward to what will transpire in the second half of the tribulation period then when we come to chapter 15 we begin to our forward movement again and in revelation 15:1 we read then i saw another sign in heaven great and marvelous seven angels having the seven last plagues for in them the wrath of god is complete now the scene in chapter 15 continues to be in heaven, just as it did in the in chapter 14. Chapter 14, as I pointed out, began with this, uh, or is really marked by a series of phrases translated in, into English as either "then I looked" or "then I saw." Verse 1, verse uh, 6, and verse 14 all begin the same way. But then chapter fifteen one begins with this same phrase, but it's markedly different because of the context. It's not a continuation of what was seen in chapter 14. But there is a shift because of the context into a specific uh, heavenly vantage point where now there's forward movement as John sees the seven angels coming with the seven bowls of which bold judgments identified here as the as the last plagues. So fifteen one serves as a summary of what will be covered in the next in the next chapter. So chapter fifteen describes the gives us a heavenly prelude to the uh, implementation of these bold judgments, which actually occurs in the next chapter. As you note, if you just look at chapter fifteen, it's a short chapter only eight verses, but it serves as the prelude and and a very sober warning to what is about to transpire on the earth as these judgments are, uh, <clears throat> are implemented. There are two scenes in chapter 15. The first is covered in verses uh, 1 through 4 and focuses on the uh, victorious martyrs that have come out of the tribulation and are now before the throne of God. And the second scene covers the last four verses, five through eight, and that focuses on the seven angels that are coming out of the heavenly temple carrying their bowls for judgment uh, that they will pour out upon the earth. And they are clad in their judicial uniforms like officers of the court, the white robes, and the golden sash uh, were typical in the uh, uh, first century What in a Jewish context of that which was worn by uh, someone who was a judge or instigating judgment, the white representing purity. So as we get into the first verse, we see that it begins with the phrase, I saw another sign in heaven, another sign in heaven. And this is the third sign that we have seen since Revelation 12.1. In 12.1, we see that the phrase, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. And as we saw when we studied that, the woman in Revelation 12.1 represents Israel and God's plan for Abraham's descendants, the uh, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The, tw- the moon, the, the sun, the moon, the 12 stars represent the tribes of israel comes out of the imagery comes out of joseph's dream that he had in genesis 37 uh, his mother's represented by the moon his father by the sun and the brothers by the uh, by the 12 star, uh 12 stars so that's the first sign the second sign is was then given in Revelation 12:3. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. So there's this, the battle scene is set up in Revelation 12 between these two signs. The woman on the one hand, who's, and that sign is described as a great sign. Uh, the uh, second sign is not called great or marvelous and it is the opposite in, and basically describes the fundamental war uh, that occurs throughout history between Satan and God's chosen people Israel then we come to the third sign now and this sign is in heaven so these signs are important for understanding the the orientation of these judgments i believe and we'll see something of this in the um, when we get down into the third verse. If you note, the third verse says that uh, <clears throat> these martyrs in heaven sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. That indicates a definite, there's a definite Jewish flavor here, and there's a de- definite uh, allusions in these verses to the Exodus event. And so there's this, this uh atmosphere in these two verses there's a tone there that relates to uh, to Israel and so we see that that God's deliverance here uh of these martyrs is tied back to his promise to Israel and the fact that he is bringing about a Another deliverance of Israel, another redemption of the nation. And just as at the time of Egypt, he brought them out of a time of great danger and redeemed them and brought them into the, their own land and established them as a nation. So now, at the end of the tribulation, there's this, this all of these judgments will ha- also have to do with bringing Israel as a nation to that final point where they accept Jesus as the Messiah. And then God is going to rescue them and establish them as a nation and establish the messianic, the messianic kingdom. So 15.1 says, I saw another sign in heaven and this one is called great and marvelous, great and marvelous. And there are, and the sign itself is the seven angels that are carrying the seven last the seven last plagues. Now one note on the word marvelous, this is a Greek word that has not so much the idea of marvelous, that that has certain connotations in English, Um, a better word would be awe, but when we then combine that with the English word awesome, that word sort of became a slang term back in the 90s. That something was just awesome, but it, it communicates the idea of just being overwhelmed and overpowered by the majesty, the righteousness, and the justice of God and His power as it is being displayed in these final judgments upon evil. So if you remember back in, I think it was in about Revelation chapter, uh, chapter eight, when the seventh trumpet I mean, the seventh seal is broken. It's the, the text says there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. That as though the heavenly witnesses saw what was going to transpire on the earth in terms of the, the final judgments and how horrible these were, and the 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 violence and all of the suffering that was going to uh, come about during that last judgment that they were just shut down there was just nothing anyone could say there was just a stunned silence in heaven and that is the uh, same kind of thing that we see in inherent in this word for for marvelous it is just as as this sign works itself out this is the final stage of that seventh seal. Remember the seventh seal contains the seventh trumpet, the, the seven trumpet judgments and the seven bowl judgments. So that is all part of what produced that stunned silence uh, earlier in revelation, uh, revelation eight. Now these seven angels that come out appear seven times. It's interesting how the word seven keeps showing up again and again. It's a, term uh, a word it's the numerical implication is of completion and these seven angels appear as a group seven times in the remainder of the book four times they are mentioned in this chapter and outside of this chapter they're mentioned again in 16 1 and then uh, finally in 21 9 and so there is this this group of angels and then individuals within that group appear several other times as well in the remainder of this, uh, in the ma- remainder of Revelation, so it emphasizes their role as the intermediate agents of God, carrying out His final decrees of judgment. Now we see the phrase the seven last plagues. Usually we see the bowl judgment or the seal judgments, then the trumpet judgments spoken of in terms of either the seal judgments or the trumpet judgments or his judgments, but in um, Revelation. Uh, 920, these first six seal judgments and the trumpet judgments were also called plagues. The term plagues is a term that is used as a synonym in scripture for the judgments of God. And it takes, it's a term that takes us back to the 10 plagues of Egypt. So the use of that word here uh, is definitely uh, a word that is, that is intended to bring to our minds those ten plagues that God used to bring, uh, to redeem the Jews out of slavery in Egypt. There are also, uh, two of the bold judgments. The first bold judgment and the third bold judgment are very similar to judgments that occurred, uh, in the ten plagues, uh, the ten Egyptian plagues. Now, the earlier judgments that we've seen, the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments, emphasize the coming severity of the wrath of God. But nothing, no one has seen anything yet compared to what is going to be displayed in this final series of bowl judgments. And these are the last ones. The Greek word there for last is eschatos which is where we get our Greek word eschatology, the study of last things. So these are the last plagues. This is going to bring all of God's judgments to a conclusion, and that's what's emphasized in the last statement, because uh, the Greek word there indicates cause. Uh, English uses the word for or because in them, that is, they're called the last plagues, because in them the wrath of God is complete, and the he uh, I mean the Greek word that's translated uh, complete there is the word uh, teleao. We've used that, and referred to that many times. It means complete uh, to bring something to completion or to finish it. Uh, one form of that word is what Jesus used on the cross when he said, "It is finished." Uh, to telestai, the perfect uh, passive participle there, and here we have. Or the perfect passive indicative rather uh here we have the uh, wrath of god is complete and even though it's an aorist which is normally a past tense an aorist tense is often used in prophecy to refer to a future event as if it is already completed because it is so uh, certain it's so definite and so in those cases it should be translated as a as a future perfect in english and we would translate it then For in them the wrath of God will have been completed. I typed in will of God. I was thinking something else. In them the wrath of God will have been completed. So when these seven bold judgments are are brought to pass, that finishes or completes the judgment of God. Now, what is the wrath of God? The wrath of God actually is an English phrase that translates two different English words. I mean, two different Greek words. Two different Greek words. The first word is orge, uh, which, uh, sometimes that's just translated anger, whereas thumas would be translated wrath, but that's, the translators aren't always that, that consistent. So you have these two different words that are used, and up until about chapter 12, the the Greek word that's used to translate the wrath of the land, the wrath of God, is orge, but starting in chapter 12, it shifts to thumos. And these words overlap, they're almost identical in many contexts, but if you take the time to go through all the different little shades of meaning in the different words, it seems that orge is used to express the objective severity of God's justice. Uh, he, wrath is not a term meaning that God is just suddenly angry with man. Anger is an emotion that that is the result of something that we know God in his in his omniscience has always known about all of the evil that is going to transpire in human history. It is something he 's fully aware of he doesn 't learn anything new he doesn 't suddenly see all of the rebellion of uh, mankind in the tribulation period and suddenly become angry. And just get angrier and angrier at mankind, uh, nobody wants to have a judge who 's angry. Emotion blots out uh, objective thought and the But these phrases, like the wrath of God and the anger of God, are designed to communicate the severity of god 's justice. We use phrases like this all the time when we talk about someone goes to court and the judge executes a sentence that is uh, extremely harsh we might say the judge threw the book at him. Well, we don't mean the judge literally picked up a book and threw it at him, but we are expressing the severity of the penalty. And that's what is communicated by this phrase, the wrath of God and the anger of God is it expresses the seriousness uh, and the severity of God's justice and the harshness of the penalty. So that Orge represents represents that judgment, the penalty uh, from an objective perspective as one might look at it uh, as it hasn't been applied yet. And you just look at the penalty and you think, that is really harsh. And then uh, Thumas contemplates it from the uh, perspective of it being applied and you see it. Uh, written down that this is what the penalty is and you think, boy, that is, that is terrible. That is harsh. And then you see it applied. And you just want to close your eyes and not watch because it's so horrible. That's the difference that is contemplated between orge and thumas. And we have various places in Revelation where we have both words used independently and some where they overlap. For example, in Revelation 12:12, 12, 12, we have the use of Thumas, Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath. This pictures the anger. I mean, this pictures the anger of Satan rather, uh, not the same as the wrath of God. In Revelation 14, 14:10, uh, 14, we read. Uh, He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. We saw this in the last chapter, two uses of this, the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. And the word translated indignation is orgate. Now, in this imagery, what we see is that verse 10 talks about the person who worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand. So this is the unbeliever, the earth dweller. And he, what does he do? He drinks the wrath of God. That is the application of that judgment to the individual. So he drinks the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. And that represents the Justice of God, as contemplated in terms of its the objective sentencing, it is not applied; it is uh, held as it were ready to be applied revelation fourteen nineteen we see the statements of the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great wine press. Of the wrath of God. And it's interesting that the phrase wrath of God with Thumas isn't used until the second half of the tribulation when you see the fullest application of God's judgment upon the earth. Now we see the phrase orge used uh, earlier in the book, for example, in the sixth seal judgment when. There is an asteroid shower or something like that that comes to the earth and and it's pummeling everybody on the earth and the kings and the princes and the commanders and generals all crawl into caves to hide. Uh, and they say, say to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. Remember, that's the father. The one on the throne is the father. And from the wrath of the lamb. And this is Orge. This is the... The, the objective penalty that has been assessed uh, for their rejection of Christ. Again, in ver- the next verse states, For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And so this contemplates the judgment of God from the vantage point of the sentence itself. Uh, verse uh, Revelation eleven eighteen. The nations were angry and your wrath has come, the harsh sentence has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Now this all relates to a basic understanding of the essence of God. And so I'm going to put up here the um, the attributes of God. God is sovereign, which means he rules over creation. He rules over everything that he has created, and he is the final authority in creation. Second, he is righteousness. He is righteous. This represents the standard of his character, that he himself is the absolute standard by which everything is evaluated. And then justice is the application of that standard. Now, both of these these words that we have in English, righteousness and justice, have have little relationship to each other. But in the, both Greek and Hebrew, the same word group uh, is translated into both of these terms. So in, in Greek, you have the word group with the noun is decay or dikaios, dikaios dikaiosune, These can be either righteousness, which is the standard, or justice, which is the application of the standard, depending on the context. In Greek, it's uh which is the verb to be righteous. And again, it can either be righteous or the application of righteousness, which is justice. But these two concepts always go together, and they're foundational for understanding what is happening in chapter 15. What's so interesting when you go through Revelation, is you have three series of judgments. The whole book, as we've seen again and again, hangs on these three series of judgments. The uh, uh, seal judgments, trumpet judgments, and bowl judgments. What happens just before the execution of each one of these series of judgments? There is a scene in heaven where the angels and the, uh, the four living creatures and the elders are singing praise to God, and each one of those hymns that they sing focus on God's holiness, His righteousness, and His justice. Because what and, and you have to stop and think, why is the writer doing that? Why does John reveal it this way? And that is because these judgments are so harsh that man, in human viewpoint, says, well, you know, how can this be fair? How can this be just? This is just, this is so harsh. This is so horrible. And yet... What the writer of, uh, is showing here, what the Holy Spirit is teaching us, is that this judgment flows out of God's absolute purity, his righteousness and his holiness and his justice. And because he is righteous and just, he has to deal with rebellion and sin in this manner. He has dealt with it in another manner, and that was at the cross. And that was his grace where he poured out this same kind of judgment Just think about that. This helps us understand perhaps something about the kind of judgment that was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. We look at the severity of the tribulation judgments, and then you think about how those—that there was that same kind of judgment of sin that's poured out upon Jesus Christ and the intensity of it during those three hours on the cross from 12 noon to 3 p.m. when he pays the sin penalty for the human race. And then after that has accomplished, then, uh, and that is a demonstration of the love of God, which is our uh, next characteristic in in the essence of God. It, and it doesn't work apart from his righteousness and justice. In fact, if God weren't righteous and just, then his love would be nothing more than just sentimentality. It would have no substance to it. It would have no uh, no no depth to it. it would have no value to it, and love without righteousness without an ethical standard, an ethical absolute is not worth anything at all and so you have the righteousness and justice of God works together with his love the, the These three come together and to really form the foundation. Of the entire essence of God, this is the ethical foundation, along with truth, as we'll see in just a minute. This is really the ethical foundation for the for the character of God, and that's the reason. Just as Jesus, just as God sent His Son, and that came out of His righteousness, His justice, and His love. Just as The sending of his Son to take on and bear the sin penalty for us is as much a product of his righteousness, justice, and love, and it shows his grace in providing that solution. So at the end times, because his grace has been rejected, that his righteousness, justice, and love must now pour out this kind of judgment on those who have rejected him and upon the cosmic system and upon the fallen angels. So we see that God is sovereign, he's righteous, he's just, he's love, he's eternal life. And then we have the 3 O characteristics. He's he knows everything, he is present to everything in his creation, omnipresent, and he is all powerful, uh, omnipotent. And then he is absolute truth, veracity. So that because he is absolute Absolutely true, that works with his righteousness, justice, and love to form the very foundation of his character. And then this never changes. That is his uh, immutability. He never changes. We always count him to be the same way. And so his righteousness never varies, his justice never varies, his love never varies. It's always the same, yesterday, today, and forever. Now, the focal point here in the... And, and the first verse sets us up for understanding the justice and righteousness of God in terms of his wrath is, the, is what undergirds, that's the doctrine that undergirds this whole uh, this whole chapter. Now in verse 2, this is going to be uh, exemplified again in the heavenly vision. So we ha- have the statement, I, and John says, and I saw, again he uses that same, that he had at the beginning of verse 1 and I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. Now, the last time we saw this glassy sea was like crystal in Revelation chapter 4. And it was before the throne of God. This is the same glassy sea as we see depicted in the, in the artwork. And it is this sea like, our glassy sea that separates God from His creatures. There is this distance between God on His throne and the angels and the four living creatures and the elders. There's something that separates God from them and that is His a character, his righteousness and justice, his holiness is not shared with his creatures, his is uh, absolute. And so we see this imagery used in again in verse two. I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. Now in the previous image it is a it is a crystal sea, but here it is mingled with fire. Why? That imagery of the fire is image of judgment, which is what is about to occur. And so, as this judgment is about to be poured out, the uh, the it's, it's his holiness and his righteousness that is enacted. And so, there is the mingling of fire uh, in this sea of glass. So John says, "I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have victory." over the beast. Now, who are the ones who have victory over the beast? See, I have inserted the word overcomer there. This is the same Greek word that's used in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3 to describe those mature believers who overcome, who are victorious in the Christian life. And that's what the word means. It comes from the root uh, now, nike, meaning to have victory or to overcome. And in uh, grammatically, it's the same uh, format. It's a present active participle. Here it's a plural, whereas in those passages it's a singular. But it, it's the same idea. So th- those overcomers, those who overcome the beast, we could translate it that way, those who overcome the beast. And this is an interesting and ironic twist because it appeared that the beast overcame them because he's the one who took their life. He's the one who, uh, executed them because of their refusal to take the mark of the beast, because of their refusal to worship, uh, his, uh, worship him, and his, their refusal to take on the number, uh, 666. And so because they refused to do that, they were executed, they became martyrs, and now they are before uh, the throne of God, standing on the sea of glass. And then that next phrase, having harps of God, really sets up the transition to the next verse, which is where they begin to sing. So there is going to be this heavenly choir of these martyred saints. Now, this is different from that which we saw in the last chapter. In the last chapter, we saw the 144,000 with the lamb at the, on Mount Zion, and they were singing a song accompanied by harps that they, uh, only they could sing because only they had gone through the experiences that they had gone through in the tribulation period. But here we have the, the, these are the other tribulation martyrs, those who die and in Revelation 12:11, we have a similar phraseology. talks about th- those who overcame the beast by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to death. So in the act of when the, the Antichrist thinks that he is destroying and overcoming them, they are, in fact, overcoming the beast. It's the same sort of ironic twist that we saw on the cross. When Satan thought that he was having his greatest victory over, over God, it, was, it sealed his defeat. And same kind of thing with the beast. He is thinking he's got this great victory over these Christians, these believers in the tribulation, and indeed what he seals by killing them is their own victory over him by virtue of the blood of the Lamb so we um uh, see that the there's this sea of glass mingled with fire those who have victory over over the beast over his image now, there was one note I had back here. Let me see if it showed up no, it didn't somehow it got lost in the let me skip through this it got lost in the Translation. Now that's New King James that's up there. No, if you notice, if you're using New American Standard or you're using NIV, it won't read the same. That has the phrase over the. Um, they have victory over the beast, over his image, and I put in brackets over his mark. That's in a few manuscripts that ended up in the in the Texas Receptus. It's in the King James and the New King James, but it's not in the critical text. It's not in the majority text. It's not in the vast majority. Of, of manuscripts, and so uh, that is probably not in the original. It's just over the beast, over his image, and over the number of his names, a uh, number of his names standing on the sea of glass having harps of God. And so this is the same kind of, the same imagery we have from Revelation chapter 4, verse 6. And then with the harps they will sing, verse uh, 15, 3, They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Now, where's the orientation to worship here? Is it the Lord Jesus Christ or God the Father? It is God the Father. There is worship to the Lamb, but here the focus is on, on God the Father, and that's indicated by the phrase "Lord God Almighty," which is never used of the Son. It is always used of the Father. The, the Greek word "pantokrator" for Almighty emphasizes His omnipotence, His power, because He is the one on the throne. Great and marvelous are Your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the Saints. Now, saints here is just a term for believers. These are not a special class of, of Christians who are identified as being super spiritual by the, by some sort of church hierarchy. Every believer is a saint. It simply means a sanctified one, one who is set apart to God. And so every, every person who believes in Jesus Christ becomes a saint at the instant of their instant of their salvation now when we look at this phrase and we see that this they sing the song of Moses the servant of God and the song of the Lamb what are these songs that are being described here and there's not a lot of clarity on this Uh, there are two options for the song of Moses one is the song that the a uh, song that the Jews sang in Exodus chapter 15 after Israel was uh, triumphant over the Egyptians after their rescue through the Dead Sea and their victory as God has destroyed the army of Pharaoh and then there is another passage in Deuteronomy chapter 32 which has also some some similar themes to it and as you see in the verse up here the theme of what they are singing here is the justice and the veracity of God. Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Now, the song of Moses in Exodus 15 1 is a song that uh, focuses on God's victory over Israel's enemies. I uh, just have the first two verses up here. Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord, and spake saying, "I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously the horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him a habitation. my father's God, and I will exalt him And the focus in uh, uh, Exodus chapter Uh, 15, is on the deliverance that God has brought to Egypt in bringing, I mean, to to the Jews in bringing them out of of Egypt. Now, Deuteronomy 32 has some value because um, it focuses on the same theme of justice and truth. In Deuteronomy 32, 3 and 4, we read, because I will publish the name of the Lord ascribe you greatness unto, unto our God he is the rock his work is perfect for all his ways are judgment a god of truth and without iniquity just and right is he so Deuteronomy 32 also brings up all of the sins and failures of the of the Jews but it focuses on the the uh, veracity of God and on his righteousness and so both of these are candidates and probably the phrase Song of Moses is simply a reference to uh, what God did through the life of Moses in delivering the Jews from slavery in Egypt and the way in which God fulfilled his promises to Israel and to Moses down through the ages and is about to bring those to conclusion because Deuteronomy 32 also focuses on the fact that God is going to eventually deliver uh, Israel again and bring them back to the land. And so I think there's an eschatological uh, future prophetic orientation to Deuteronomy 32 that is related to this and also connecting the, uh, in- the integrity of God, his righteousness, his justice, his love, which all work together along with truth. And that is really the, as I said earlier, the ethical foundation for God's character and why we can, and we can always count on him to, uh, do the same thing every time, and it's always the right thing. Psalm 89.14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness, that's the Hebrew word chesed, meaning his faithful, loyal love, his sometimes translated mercy, his loving kindness and truth go before you. So you see in many passages there's a connection between three or four of these same attributes together that cause us to, that we should be focusing our attention in our singing and worship in our thoughts about God upon this aspect of His, of His character. The song of the Lamb takes us back to Revelation 5 9 after the Lamb has come forward to take the uh, scroll out of the right hand of the, of the Father. The those who were before him, the angels, the uh, four living creatures, the 24 elders, sung a new song saying, You are worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. So the focus there is on the redemptive work of Christ, which fulfilled the, and satisfied the justice of God. So, Revelation 15:3 says they they sing the song of Moses the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, "Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the Saints." And so there's that focus on the Lord God Almighty, and we can it's important to trace this title. Through the book of Revelation, at the very beginning in the prelude in Revelation eight, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end says the Lord God. Uh, this is the Father who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, a lot of people get confused when they read that. They look at that who is to come and they think that's Jesus because Jesus is coming. And Jesus comes in Revelation 19, but the Father comes in Revelation 21. And the phrase, uh, who is and who was and who is to come, always applies to the one on the throne in the book of Revelation, and he is described as the Almighty. So the focal point of Revelation is on the Father and the completion of the Father's plan, and ultimately the Father taking up residence with mankind on planet Earth, and that's Revelation 21. There'll no longer be any need for a for a temple. For the Father uh, will dwell amongst us. Uh, so Revelation 1:8 is the foreshadowing of that. Uh, Revelation 4:8. Uh, in the first scene of, the, uh, of what is going on in heaven, the four living creatures sing before God, the Father on the throne, holy, 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 Lord God almighty, who was and is and is to come. And it's clearly the one on the throne. Remember, it's the Lamb who comes up. He's separate. So this can't be talking about uh, the Son, uh, the one who is to come. So this is talking about the God, the Father again. And the emphasis is on his Holiness. Revelation eleven seventeen we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the One who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reign. This is the Father executing judgment during the tribulation uh, period revelation fifteen three uh, the, our passage they sing the song of Moses, calling upon uh, and singing it to the Lord God Almighty and then, in the next chapter, uh, John says, "I heard another from the altar saying, even so, Lord God Almighty, what? True and righteous are your judgments. So it, again and again, these, these, just before we get into the horrors of the judgments, our attention is taken to the throne of God, it's taken to his essence, it's taken to his righteousness, his justice, his holiness, that what he does is right, it's pure, it's holy, and it is the fulfillment of his of his justice. And these are the two key words that are emphasized here: dekaios. Uh, the root in Greek is dekai, and it is a term meaning either righteousness or justice. That which is right, and, and, and when it's translated righteous, it indicates the standard of something. When it's uh, translated just or justice, it's talking about the application of that standard. Uh, in a similar way to what I, the distinction I was trying to make earlier between orge and thumas. That orge is, um, is the, the, the objective sentence, judicial penalty, and thumas is its application. And then the other word that's used here is alethanas which means something that is true and genuine. So he is absolute truth. As Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Then in verse 4 we read, Who shall not fear you, O Lord? That the Fear in the sense of serious respect uh, engendered in the creature here as we focus on his holiness, his righteousness, his separateness, his distinctiveness. For you alone are holy, he is not shared with any of his creatures, his absolute uh, righteousness. For all nations, and this is the explanation, who shall not fear you? Because first of all, you are holy. Second, because all nations shall come and worship before you. And third, for your judgments have been manifested. When the, the human race looks upon the outworking of those judgments when it's all over with, the conclusion will be this was the right thing to do. And yet the horror is unbelievable. So the second part of the chapter then comes in verse 5. After these things, John says, I looked and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. Now this is a really important Greek phrase because it pulls together two different key Greek words, naos for temple and skene for tabernacle. And we did a lot of t- spent a lot of time in Hebrews last year. We dealt a lot with these words. There's another word, uh heros which has to do with temple, and that was a word that incorporated the entire temple complex. Naos was a word that focused on the holy place itself, the holy place, the holy of holies, the the um, that the inner building where uh in the holy of holies where, where God dwelt. So the temple The naos indicates that inner sanctum, and then skene is a word for dwelling, for a dwelling place. And so uh, the, the temple is the dwelling of God in heaven, and inside of it is the dwelling of the testimony. Now the testimony has to do with the heavenly record of God's covenant with Israel that was kept in the Ark of the Covenant. So this Tabernacle of the testimony in heaven has to do with the heavenly record of God's covenant with man, and so it is, that is the basis for His judgment of mankind. And in verse six, we read, "Out of the temple, then coming out from this place where you have the judicial record, which emphasizes that they are executing the the the, the decisions." that are laid down in law, in covenant, the covenants that God has made with man. And that is, so there's a legal basis for these judgments. Out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues. Now, notice their description. They are clothed in pure, bright linen. Remember in the Old Testament, the priest wore garments of linen. There wasn't a mixing of threads. So it indicates holiness. It's pure. It's bright. All of this indicates uh, a a lack of unrighteousness, absolute purity, absolute righteousness. They have their chests girded with golden bands. Now, where have we seen this imagery before? Revelation chapter 1, verse 13, in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. This is a, uh, this is a, the, the, the white robe is like a priest and the golden band was a sign of judicial authority. So he's the, represented as the priest judge. And these angels coming out dressed that same way indicates that they are carrying out, they are implementing the judicial decrees, uh, that are consistent with the Son of Man who is the, uh, has been given the, uh, the judge, judgment has been delegated to him from God the Father. So, verse seven, then one of the four living creatures Gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever. Now, these this would be a shallow bowl uh, or a vial. Uh, In fact, the Greek word is phial, P-H. It's with a phi, P-H-I-A-L. And so these, the four living creatures are now involved in the implementation of the judgment. the four living creatures then give, give to the seven angels the seven bowls that are full of the wrath of God the implementation of his wrath the thumos of God who lives forever and ever but there is something that dramatic that happens here at the close of this chapter in the past you have the um, though the attendants around the throne of God continue to stay in the temple of God. But the severity of this judgment is of such a nature that God, has, it's a picture of God shrouding himself in smoke, so you, 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 you don't see him. It's like when he's on Mount Sinai. Again, the imagery here with the sea, before the throne you are reminded of this the Israel coming out from the uh, uh out of Egypt through the Red Sea the when God appears on Mount Sinai the, he's surrounded in smoke when you and surrounds the mountain in smoke and fire at the top you also have the picture of the the tabernacles built after that and the testimonies given on Mount Sinai so there's all these imagery here that goes back to to the Exodus event But what happens here is as God is going to pour out the last final stages. It is as if God stays within the temple alone and no one is allowed back in until the judgments are complete. It is showing that that, that his holiness, his separateness, his distinctiveness, but it is also uh, emphasizing just the... Uh, the, the harshness and the severity of this of this final judgment and the intensity of this judgment is so uh, severe and it's so extreme that God, uh, as it were, isolates himself within his, his temple until it is completed. And so verse 8 says that the temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God And from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed, were brought to completion. So verse 8 mirrors the statement that is made in verse 1, that in these seven plagues, the wrath of God will have been brought to completion. And then when we come to the end, we have another aorist form That uh, no one can enter the temple again until it is brought to, until it is, these plagues are completed. That sets us up for the instigation of these seven bold judgments, which are then going to be described in the next chapter. And so we'll come back, uh, next time and we'll get into these seven bold judgments in chapter 16. And that should work out fine. We should get through that just before I take off uh, for a week to go to um, uh, WHW. So don't forget that first full week in October is a time when I will be gone. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening and to focus on these things, to re- be reminded of your uh, holy character, your righteousness, your justice, that you are a God who is distinctly uh, different from anything that we can imagine. You are the Creator and we are the creatures, and you have set the standard of righteousness for all of your uh, creation, and that has been violated by sin, by rebellion, and yet in your mercy, you have provided a gracious solution that we can uh, be forgiven by virtue of Christ's death on the cross and believing on him. But yet, for those who have not, there is still a righteous judgment that they must endure uh, on the earth and that you will bring to fruition, to completion, that judgment on, on evil in history and in the cosmic system. And, Father, we look forward to that, but we also realize this will be a time of great horror And that should also move us to witness, to explain the gospel to the lost, and to continue to remind those that we know are unsaved of the desperate need that they have for salvation. And we pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.